every bad idea is the seed for a, a great idea. So you throw that out there, don't throw it away. Keep it kind of in your back pocket and build on it. Welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about finding your unexpected path to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm an artist and a marketer. And on today's show, we have Kendall Bradford, who's a senior brand manager of experience and retail design at Wayfair. I am so excited to bring you this episode. It was recorded back in the fall, live from Wayfair's headquarters in Boston. And Kendall and I go way back to college together at Syracuse University. And it's been amazing to watch her path unfold. She's gone from a fine artist painter to an event planner, and then on to Ralph Lauren Sachs, the National Gallery of Art, as a visual designer. And she's worked on the creative for windows and set displays before joining Wayfair to bring their online shopping experience into the real world. Speaking of the real world, I hope everyone listening is safe and healthy out there. These are such challenging days, and I'm sending love and warm thoughts to each and every one of you listening. There's lots of talk in this episode of real-world experiences, so know that we recorded before the pandemic was part of our everyday lives. Now, before we get started, I just want to address the fact that we have not had new episodes in a while. Things got a bit busy on the life front, on the work front. All has been going well. I've been working at Envision, which I absolutely love, producing content for them and leading content strategy there. I even get to work on the Design Better podcast, which is a wonderful show, and we were just nominated for a Webby Award, which is really exciting. And I've been focusing in on my own artistic side hustle of creating band posters and art for musicians. So things have been good, and I've been really itching to get back on the mic and share new episodes with you all. So I'm really excited to share this Kendall Bradford episode with you all. And know that I'm working on a new set of episodes for Making Ways that's going to be coming later this summer. I'm super excited to share more about that really soon. So now that we're all caught up, let's get started with my conversation with Kendall Bradford, live from Wayfair. So excited to be here live at Wayfair. And everyone give it up for Making Ways live and Kendall Bradford. Hi. Kendall, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, it's your office, so I guess it, it makes sense that you're here. It, it does. You didn't really have to go too far for this interview. No, you did. I did, yeah, a little ways. I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad to see you too. I've known Kendall for a really long time. Uh, a hop, skip, and a jump away from college. 21, 22 years. Something like that, a couple. It just yeah, feels yeah. like a couple. So, Kendall. Rob. Let's start off with a little bit about your job here at Wayfair. What are you doing here? And what's like a day in the life? That is a fascinating question <laughs> because it is a blend of uh, literally everything. Yeah. So it can be one day, it could be flying to a location to re-merchandise and pop up. It could be going down to fabricators and working with them to make sure that they are designing things as we have laid out for them and making sure that we are putting our best foot forward with our collaborative design projects. And Wayfair is obviously an online platform. I've been to your website. I'm perusing your furniture as I consider furnishing my new apartment. You're working on physical locations and physical stores and experiences for Wayfair, bringing the online into the real world. 
Yes. And as well as concepting for trade shows, booth designs, and also making sure that our experiences within the retail is on brand and fun and playful and exciting. Awesome. And trying to bring a zillion things into small spaces is going to be challenging. Right. There's a few options on the Wayfair site and with all the brands. So you got to like, you got to figure out what the style is and bring that to life. Yeah. All right. So let's go all the way back because I want to talk about your career path. Let's start briefly. I want to talk about high school into college. Before we met, we were talking before the podcast and you were telling me that growing up, you didn't really know what a creative career was. And you were on this track at a prep school basically for you know Ivy League schools, doctor, lawyer, all of that. And you reached this kind of like turning point moment, this choice? Well, I would say I wasn't on track in the prep school. I was an art kid. Okay. And so the prep school was definitely focused on Harvard, Yale, getting those kids into those universities. And I was definitely a student that was in the arts. I was basically their PR for everything at that prep school because they were like, (laughs) oh, we need a design. Oh, give it to Kendall. (laughs) So for literally eight years, I mean, I had this massive portfolio because they were like, go to Kendall. She'll do this card. She'll do these t-shirts. She'll do everything. You were like the unicorn amongst like the... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I, at the same time, I was also a recruit for Syracuse for crew. So it, it was... I wound up going to Syracuse because they had an art school and I didn't really know what that meant. So when I got there and we were all in that auditorium together and I was looking around and they were my people. Right. And they were like, you guys are going to be all in in studying art history, art theory, color theory, design. I was like, where's the math? (laughs) Is there bio involved? And they were like, no, you guys don't do that. (laughs) And I was like, okay, this is great. Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing. And so in college, you studied painting. Illustration first. Illustration first. We were were in illustration together. We were in illustration together. And I remember it. I do. I, I don't. I don't know if <laughs> we okay. had classes together. I don't think together. we had classes together. I don't think we had classes together. But I decided at the time, I didn't like being told what to do. <laughs> okay. Within <laughs> my projects. Right. Illustration. It's like, you need to illustrate this. You need yeah. to draw were like, that. The eyes You're need like, to be no. blue. You need to change this. And I right. was like, wait a second. Hold on. I want to dig into the processes. Right. And I wanted to learn. We had welding studios. We had floor looming studios. We had all this fabrication at our fingertips. And if I switched into painting, I was able to utilize all of those resources and try things because I was always interested in how things were built, how things were made, yeah. and how to, how to create. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. A lot of my memories of you from college are um, the ones I can talk about on the podcast. Now, are, are you know, oh, covered in paint, working late at the studio, giant paintings that I just didn't even know, like, where did you start on this? Where did I store them? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, where, where, where did they go? Yeah. But yeah, it was amazing, brilliant work and, you know, so inspiring. 
during that time. And after college, you talked to us a little bit about, it was like, I don't know, 10 years or so where you were kind of in that fine art vein, but you were also doing like other jobs to support it. And what, what was the world like for you then? I mean, were you basically pursuing a purely artist life? I think first, right after college, I wound up going into my master's. So my master's was located in Italy. So I had this unique experience in that I had intensive coursework and studies at the Venetian Biennale, which is the largest international exhibition for artists. And it's, it's experientially based. So literally, it's houses and pavilions around the Giardini, which is each house is for a different country. And so basically studying and meeting the artists and curators and studying in the basement of the Venetian Guggenheim, which many people don't think there's a basement because it's Venice and <laughs> generally things flood. But it all of a sudden changed my perception on art in a way. Whereas I used to be so traditionally focused, everything had to be perfect and anally rendered because that's what I used to, I used to be really anal about everything in its right place. It was the conceptual design. So it was thinking about all the senses that you have, like sound, smell, I mean, everything, when, when you're experiencing like Janet Cardiff's work or Ernesto Neto, they're using things that make you walk away and never forget them. Mm -hmm. So that really changed my life, I would say. Yeah. That because was... I, I sort of, I see that parallel pathing to where I am today with experiences. Right. Because it's not only building, but it's also making memories that people hold with them. Yeah. And so what happened when you came back from that master's program? Like, did you move into that experience design world or did it take you a long time to kind of put those pieces together and say, wait, I can, I can do that kind of artwork, but in the commercial world? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wound up... Took a while? Yeah, it took a little while. I wound up running an Italian wine bar Okay. in Manhattan. It was... Great because everybody was able to enjoy some really incredible Italian wine. Yeah. But I started, in a way, it, it was interesting because I started, it was one of the largest corporate catering operations by accident. I didn't know this. This was on the headquarters of the wine bar. They wanted someone to start getting more traffic to this wine bar. So I had to come up with it. I mean, what better person than a creative person? I was like, hey, Matt, do you want to come perform? Right. And then we were getting tons of people. I started booking comedy nights. I had a very, very poorly <laughs> made decision to have like a poetry slam, which was potentially the most awkward thing I've ever done. <laughs> I didn't do it. At like a really quiet like wine bar, have people just like it, screaming it was, and yelling and stomping and it was me and two guys and they were <laughs> it was we did it once. Oh, so and you did the poetry. No, oh, no, okay. the two guys that came in oh, okay. and they swore they were bringing up a bunch of people. Right. And then my staff was like crying, <laughs> laughing and trying to leave. My chef left the room and I was like, We don't worry guys, we won't do that again. But 
We so uh, we can't look forward to poetry slams at no, Wayfair. No, no, not run by me. That's fair enough. But the owner of the business happened to have just won a James Beard Award a month before I had started. Didn't know what that was. <laughs> Learned quickly because she was incredible. And then it was a, a tasting room, so it actually wound up being surrounded by arts because all of a sudden Wynton Marsalis is coming in for tastings for Jazz at Lincoln Center. And then they were like, wow, Kendall's really good at running things. So Kendall, we're going to let you run Brooklyn Academy of Music. Kendall, you're going to run the IFC, which is the independent film cinema Mm -hmm. or all the armory shows. You love art. Okay. You're going to run these. And then running meaning like the, the presence of the wine bar at those locations. No, no, just that as well as all of these other things. So what do you mean? Like I would run the wine bar and then on the weekends or evenings, they would say, we need to send you out. Okay. You know, can you check in over here? You know, the armory show is up for the weekend. Can you run the floor operations or events that are going on? Make sure that we're getting things together gotcha. or uh, any of the operational things. Okay. And because it was it, a massive catering company and event yeah. company and all that. Right. Yeah. So then... They were able to lean on me and to do a number of things, but I I was definitely working about seven days a week. And at the same time, I was awarded an artist residency down by the World Trade. So nobody was down there, but a few artists were awarded studios. They were trying to get people to come back into the space and yeah. Or have write offs for artists that were taking space that. They're using, uh, it's a, an organization that takes vacant real estate okay. and allows artists in there. Okay. And everything was vacant down there. So right. nobody, nobody was going down there. So I would literally finish my job at 10 o'clock maybe. And then I'd go to the studio until two or three and then wake up the next morning and do it again. How long did you do that for? Years. I mean, after the residency was over, I moved into a gallery in Brooklyn. Again, I I just literally was working all the time. That was one. That was one of the things that I think Mike Sickler told me at Syracuse. He was like, "Listen, kid, you know you're signing up for painting. You're switching from illustration. You know you have zero percent job placement." (laughs) And I was like, "Yeah, sure, fine, no problem." (laughs) And they really did a great job at at least setting us up to understand that if this is your passion, you have to work at it. Right. And you always have to work. And uh, you have to work to maintain your work and do what you can to continue to inspire yourself to keep your craft going. So was there a moment during this like frenetic work schedule where you were like, do I keep doing art? Was there like a make or break moment where you're like, is this the life I'll have for the rest of my days of working on my artwork as much as possible, working in this in a in a job as well? Was there ever a moment where you could just focus on art or you decided to move? One of our friends had passed away who was a painter. Jared was, you know, Jared. He and I were very similarly parallel pathed there was a point when he passed away that all of a sudden it it was hard, but all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, I'm working like crazy 
and this isn't this isn't right. I'm not this isn't feeling right anymore. So yeah. at the time I also had a roommate situation where there was a lot of drama and so it was it probably took about 7 or 8 months and then I was like I've got it. I'm just going to get rid of everything that's bad. So I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move out. And I was and I told my parents who were cautiously worried about me like are you you feeling okay? And I was like, "Yeah, I'm great. I'm going to quit my job and I'm homeless." And they were like, "Great." <laughs> so this was not this was your parents viewed this as a rock bottom, but you viewed yeah. it as like the top of the mountain. Yeah, I was like, "I'm free. This is <laughs> okay. wonderful." And then what happened? Then I started to started to lean in on working on events and something had kind of stuck in my head uh, from my sister who was basically traveling around the world as a linguist and doing all of these wonderful things for people. And she had said something like, you know, you paint. How does that help people? And I was like, right. How does that help people? And I was like, thanks, Amanda. You know, that's that. And then I started brainstorming and I was like, okay, I'm in Brooklyn now. There are the Brooklyn is now turning over. I'm losing my another studio because it's being turned into condos. There are all of these beautiful white walls everywhere. Let me see if I can pitch curating these events in them. Yeah. And get the artists to donate 20% of their proceeds to a charity of our choosing. I can do the event part. I was soliciting food donations, beverage donations, writing the press releases. And getting people to come, musicians to come. You came. Yeah. And they were fun. Yeah, it was really fun. And we were able to make, I mean, probably upwards of $10,000 per event. But that was pretty good for being scrappy. Yeah. And all of the artists were excited to have a platform to show in. And when you're dealing with like New York galleries, 40% of your your work goes to the gallery. So here we're saying... Here I was saying, look, twenty percent. Let's give this. Let's give this back. And so uh, it was a lot of work. But then at the same time, I and this was still doing many different jobs. I had been working at an architecture firm three days a week, and I had been a personal assistant as well and teaching figure drawing in a gallery. Basically, I, I had also at that point started doing floral. Okay. Which is crazy. I mean, I did everything. But yeah. then suddenly... Makes sense. You have your job now, which you oh start off by saying is a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's true. And then at the time, there was a point where... There was a close point where there were a number of huge wins that were about to go through for me. PwC was about to buy 30 of my paintings. Wow. And I know. And it was in the third final round. And I was like, I'm there. And then the economy crashed. And the sale didn't go through. Yeah. And then I like French Vogue was supposed to do this whole layout spread again, the of my work and the the economy crashed. And I, I mean, there was all of these things, and I I felt like uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've been like hustling, and hustling, I, and hustling, and making it happen, and then just the the rug yeah. came out. Yeah. And so then I realized that still maintaining, always maintaining the work, always maintaining creativity, always being present at Chelsea openings every Thursday, it was super important 
to be around creativity, whether it be a museum, whether it be in a music space, anything, because you're taking inspiration from all of these things. And if you're not present for them, you're not affected by them. So I kept doing that and I would lean into that when I was feeling lost. Yeah. And, and then I think at, at one of those points, I said, okay, you know, I have this really heavy operations background in the food business and I wound up taking this uh, bar management job at the Bowery Hotel, but I prefaced it with, listen, guys, I'll do this job, but I don't want to be in too many meetings because I didn't want to get into, I didn't want to be a restaurant bar food and beverage manager or director. I just, I wanted it to maintain until I could solve my creative need. And so I, I did that for, I was running, you know, doing all their inventories, their training, their hiring and firing, and you can get many different people that work with you, especially in restaurant. It was, it was a celebrity spot. So it was always a little bit fun, you know, because you name it, I've probably seen them or we took care of them. Yeah, we were always like texting that, oh, come in, this person's here, that person's there. There's, there's JLo or, (laughs) you know. So, um, so at what point, because there's some, there's some pretty big names that you started to, to work with, like Ralph Lauren and Sachs and eventually the National Gallery. At what point did you start taking all these experiences and go, I'm going to go kind of full blast in-house? The way it actually happened was I was very fortunate. A, a friend of mine from grad school who had worked for Ralph Lauren and Como had said, you know, they're looking for someone. They're about to open the women's mansion. And that was a huge deal because that mansion had sat vacant on Madison Avenue for years. And Ralph finally acquired it. I mean, Mr. Lauren finally acquired it. If you're listening. (laughs) No, I know. Ralph. And um, they needed support. And so my friend who was a stylist for him for years had said, Kendall, why don't you, you know, meet with them? So I did. And I really had no idea what I was getting into. I was definitely in a lull. And I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. I basically started building sets for them. And then they wanted... And you had never done that specifically before or you, you had in bits had, and pieces? I had done a lot of floral at that point. Right. But I had not done full-blown. I had all of the skills from my background right. in terms of building and fabrication and also just building for all of my own artwork or right. all of the work I had been doing. And so it basically became like 5,000 yards of inc- like sculpted garland and then this like orb wreath of 3,000 glass pieces and then all of these over-the-top displays. And I was basically living at the headquarters. <laughs> I mean, I was. <laughs> and then there were two other people. At the time, it was three weeks in, and we would always prep holiday in June. <laughs> we would start doing holiday in June. Uh, I say that because here we're, we're getting there. We're going to do that next year. Um, but uh, we, my boss actually, two weeks in, three weeks in, just like disappeared. And I was like, uh, you know, because we're in the corporate headquarters, right? Mr. Lauren is walking around, and people are there, and there's a lot going on, and we're in the showrooms, like building stuff, and 
I'm texting her and I'm like, Kelly, hey, uh, you coming? And she had been there for like 25 years. She wound up being in the hospital because her back, she had to have emergency back surgery. So she had been the lead on all things like really design-based for Ralph Lauren. And she was gone. And they were about to really do this over-the-top windows. And windows in New York are, I mean, they're everything. So yeah. they're window awards. We win them. We used to win them a lot. Yeah. Um, so did you step into that role? Yeah. Wow. So I just showed up to a boardroom and I was like, hey, I need a credit card. <laughs> and <laughs> we need to get a lot of this stuff because we have to get this done. And they just gave me the credit card, which had no <laughs> limit on it. And so I worked with two other designers and we made it happen. Yeah. And then we were installing and then I just became full-time freelance, which meant I was there for holiday, sometimes 120 hours a week. And so that that bar management job that I was trying to sort of maintain because they provided my health insurance, Yeah, I'd be like, hey... Uh, I'm scheduling because I was in charge of the schedule other people. So I would be able, <laughs> I would be able to continue my work. And then my, at, at that point, my name started getting spread around fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue to do work. But I always preferred to work with Ralph because yeah. he had, I mean, he had best. I mean, it was incredibly inspiring because of the teams of creatives. Right. I mean, they were, uh, I mean, it's the, he is the only in-house high-end designer that has, I mean, there are gouache artists that are mocking up incredible wallpapers that they have found somewhere in England wow. that are now like hand-painting them. Then they have artists that are painting the faces of each of the, the mannequins. They ha- I mean, it is the best of the best. So our windows, when we're putting in and installing those walls or the Gatsby, our Gatsby windows won the awards. They were incredible. It was, it just was, uh, you know, a, a pool of creative energy. Yeah. And it was inspiring, although there was very little sleep involved because you change the windows every month. Right. And I was still maintaining other jobs at the same time. Wow. And what, what happened with, with Saks and, then the move to DC. I mean, you you obviously kind of found your flow at Ralph Lauren, and and you were like, I, I can do this. Yeah. And and then what happened from there? I met my now husband, and yeah. um, I met my husband, and I was again, I, I was still working at Ralph. I I maintained my apartment in Brooklyn. It's really hard to give up a rent stabilized yeah apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> I kept it for two years. And I would come back to work with some of my clients, but I took a job at Saks down um, in DC, which was their flagship store. And what was interesting was I was so used to working in headquarters that I didn't understand how it worked outside of headquarters. So certain directives are sent. We were making the directives, which was awesome at headquarters. And well, basically, we our designs were what everybody was to follow. And down in Saks, they were starting to take a perspective of Barney's, 
where they want outside of the box thinking mm -hmm. because they wanted to rebrand because sax was seen as like for your mom. So we were starting to be able to think outside of the box. Yeah. So they brought me on board. They had a team that had been there for 25 years. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you leading that team or just were working with that team that was kind of institutionally that embedded? Team, they were institutionally embedded. My director was retired or no, fired after two months of me being there. And then I was basically acting as director. Wow. And two, there were four of us. And two, two of the four went on FMLA leave. And so there was me and my friend Donna, who is 68 years old, and we were responsible for 23 windows, big windows, and over 20,000 square feet of space. Wow. And it was a massive undertaking, but I got her energized and excited. And she was like hanging from ladders <laughs> and doing all of these different things. And we were rigging things from the ceiling because they said, go Barney's. And then we kept doing it. And then we started being featured on the, the corporate site nonstop. Wow. And we, we did a lot of great work, but the job at the National Gallery came up. And so I said, like, let me go home. <laughs> that was, I mean, that was like uh, a dream. Yeah. To, to move there. So I left and then was replaced by seven people. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a... I know. Yeah, I know. But it was kind of sort of a pat on my back to be like, they needed seven? Right, right, right. All right. <laughs> but incredible. Yeah. So then I was brought on into the National Gallery to basically, they had a very tenured situation there as well. Okay. And so... My predecessor had been there for 35 years and the museum shops were in desperate need of bringing forward their mission because it was lost in the way that these areas were displayed. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you walk into the National Gallery and there's a poster of Starry Night that says MoMA. <laughs> And the curators, who are some of the the most talented curators in the world, arguably, and definitely in this country, that are cringing while walking through. And they're like, really? And then the buyers are saying, you got to look at the numbers. And, and everyone's like, mm. but so it was a lot of making sure that there was, that we were in line with the NGA brand. Yeah. And so I worked really hard to change that and we did. And we really became partners and respected by the curator of design where we would literally sit down for meetings and sketch back and forth to one another, which was like a dream. That's awesome. I mean, it was a dream. <laughs> as well as like being able to sneak into the galleries alone at night, you know, and, and, wow work with masons and carpenters. So I'd come up with designs and then they would fabricate them. And then we would also, a large part was the renovation of the retail store, which was in IM Pay's territory. So he was alive. So that makes it a little bit tricky because we had to make sure that the actual retail space was 
respectful to his design. So working with the internal architects to make sure that that was appropriate. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible, incredible journey. And now that you're here at Wayfair, the role you're in, I'm just curious about your approach now to a job that you show up to every day and your you know, passions as a painter and a creative person. How do you think about balance? Do you think about it as when you're in these walls, you're in one zone, when you're outside, you're in a different, do you bring that into work? Like, How do you kind of view it from like a, a creative fulfillment standpoint? I think that one of one of the great things about Wayfair is in being what is referred to as a manager doer here. When we're concepting designs, in seeing them realized, it feels very much a part of the natural design process for me. So in mocking up sketches and working collaboratively with so many of our internal talent, which we actually we have a ton of. And, you know, sneaking meetings to like grab Eric or like Austin or you, you name it to say, hold on, look at this. Is this crazy? And it might be. And illustrators, writers, yeah. designers. Yes, everyone. everybody. Yeah. Because, and, and I, and maybe I'm deviating from your question, but like every bad idea is the seed for a, a great idea. Yeah. So you throw that out there, don't throw it away keep it kind of in your back pocket and build on it. So the creative gear that I have or that I've built at this point is still very much there. Am I painting at the moment? No, but it's largely because everything that I use is extremely toxic and I have a three-year-old at home. (laughs) Um, So... And and he enjoys to eat everything and... (laughs) It was up until two weeks ago. No, it was even, he still eats Play-Doh and crayons. So if I have any of my materials now, I'm slightly nervous. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that that muscle, that gear is there, but it's, it's more honing in and flexing that muscle at work. When I, when I go home and, and many of you that are creatives here also know this, but you don't shut it off. You're, you're still thinking about it. And you're still iterating on it. And then you need the, the most important part is to have the space and the time to process those ideas and process them either together as a team, but also process them in spans because the creative process doesn't happen in a half hour. It happens. You might just get there by an hour in and then you're like, I've got it. And then you go with it, but you need that time. And additionally, you need the breaks to go to a museum, have a pod outing, but in an inspirational environment to take something away that then you revisit later. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I find when I'm working on creative challenges or ideas or new strategies, I'm like, I think really deeply about it. And then I feel just like, I have no idea what comes next. Yeah. And I just kind of put it in the back of my mind for however long it takes. And I know it's there and I'm kind of thinking about it. I'm going on runs or I'm meditating or whatever it might be. And eventually, like I can revisit it at key moments and the, the answers, the, the new ideas kind of emerge from the, from the muck, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you talked about the creative process. What about in terms of career moments where you've been like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to make money. I don't know how I'm going to like make this like thing that I'm doing better. I don't know what I should do next. Like when you felt lost, what have been some ways that you've kind of shaken yourself out of it? Is it just to keep moving forward, just keep doing until it feels right? Or is it is it like more of a contemplative approach? For me, the the go-to has always been go to a museum. And I love, it's great going with people, but I go, I'll go alone. Sometimes friends would be like, you're in there for hours. <laughs> go by yourself. But taking the time, I, I mean, in New York, that was, I mean, it was my, it was my savior. So yeah, there were a lot of hard times where there were those losses or the almost, almost had that residency in Switzerland. They sent me a letter that I was the runner up, which almost sucks. Worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just and they're like, we went with a performance artist this year. And I'm like, great. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have to send me that letter, you know, but I literally take the time to actually spend time in the museum because I think it's the actual data, which Wayfair loves, is like people spend about three seconds in front of a painting. So spend more than three seconds and think about it. Why is it there? And the and this also goes for experiences, like to have an adverse reaction or a, a positive reaction. Like it's better, it's better than having no reaction at all because they made you think. So make people think. And so if I'm feeling down or struggling with something, the best place to clear my head has always been in a creative space. Yeah. Whether it be a sculpture garden, whether it be, again, a museum or a yeah. concert or, yeah. but I generally would go to museums. And what about people who are looking for a way to bring more of their like passion into work, like figuring out ways to be like, I, I love doing that. I'm in my flow zone when I'm doing those things and I'm just like cut off from that when I'm sitting at my, my desk or my computer, like what are some ways that, that you've found to kind of connect those, you know, connect those things back to what you're spending a lot of your time doing. In one of our brainstorming sessions for this women conference in Boston, there was one line that popped out that we were saying like, build your own door and open it. So if you're feeling lost, I think, an example I could use from myself was I was in a particular job that I didn't love and I wasn't fulfilled. And then I said, you know, I want to teach a figure drawing class. Let me pull my resources. I need to get into this. And then I did it. And then I found the resources to do it. You have to make sure that you are finding a way. Think outside of the box and come up with, is it you taking a class? Mm -hmm. Is it you leaning in in a different way that can open your mind up? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think throughout my career, I've, I've done that both like externally and internally, where it's been like, oh, I'm interested in comedy writing. I'm going to go learn about that. Or I love doing artwork. I'm going to bring that in and you know present it to my boss or my team and see if I can do that here. Or you know, podcasting and audio, can we do a project here? just to try to like expose more of the things that you know make me feel like fulfilled and 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 good creatively and see if there's a way to open those doors in places too and keep that learning going. And that too I would say is something here with so many creatives and the company 
being at a place where it is with creativity, being open to new ideas, expressing them, talking to the people that are here to say, what do you think about this? Because the more people that hear about it, then the more opportunities we have to change it or think about it differently. Yeah. And the more perspectives that are in on it, the better it's going to become. Right. Right. Awesome. Give it up for Kendall, everybody. Thank you, Kendall. Thanks, Rob. That was my conversation with Kendall Bradford, live from Wayfair in the fall. Thank you so much, Kendall, for being part of the show, for recording that episode live in front of an audience and in front of an audience of your colleagues and teammates, no less. And thank you, everyone, for listening and for tuning in. I really hope this episode finds you safe and well out there. And I hope that you're able to take away some insights from Kendall's story. You know, no matter what kind of creative career you're pursuing, I hope Kendall's pursuit of her passion and being open to new opportunities as they came helps shed some light on what your next step in your creative path might be. Be sure to check out makingwayspodcast.com for more episodes. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you get a minute, that would mean a lot. And you can find us on Instagram too. Stay tuned for lots more to come. There'll be more episodes of Making Ways later this summer. Thanks so much for listening. Be safe out there.